Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hi, folks. So I wanted to talk today about what trauma-informed practice means and what it looks like from a trauma-informed lens, of course, but with consideration of psychodynamic theory and neuroscience, and importantly, the process or the practice of self-care, whether you are of the traumatized population, treating this population, or anyone out there who could use some self-care guidance. I'm with Daria Hansen. She is the Associate Professor and BSW Program Director of Social Work at Marist College, which is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Daria is a very seasoned private practitioner with 40 years of experience. And she focuses on trauma-informed practice. And she has some very interesting ways of helping her clients process their trauma with a key understanding of doing so when they are ready. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from her and learning from her. Thank you for being with me, Daria. Oh, you're welcome. It's exciting. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I thought that we would get started with you talking a little bit about trauma-informed care, what that looks like and what that means to you. And then I'll get into some other aspects. Yeah, let's start there. So I guess as a as a clinical social worker who's been practicing since 1978 in many different fields of practice, but primarily mental health, I think my first foray into working with trauma-informed care was as a, a clinical social worker at a community mental health center where I was on call every other weekend from Friday night to Sunday night. Oh, that's not fun. Early Monday morning. Well, mm. that was a community mental health center. That's what they did back then. And I worked with a vast array of people, everything from uh, the chronically mentally ill, schizophrenic population who were in group homes, a homeless population, um, I did substance abuse assessments determining whether somebody went to the hospital, went to jail, or went to a sober bed where they could sleep it off. And um, during that time period, I was also told that I was going to be working at a correctional facility two days a week. And I worked with men who were incarcerated for sexual perpetration. 
And I think that was really the beginning of me understanding that I really had to take care of myself. It was a a whole new thing to walk in to a correctional center, hear that door clink behind you, and then to do individual work with a population I learned about, but didn't really know a lot about and how to work with them. And realizing that they had been traumatized their whole life and not necessarily had been sexually abused, as some of us think that's why they're there, but had on the ACE scale had many of the ACEs. So I think my understanding, my kind of self-learning then was about when to approach and when to retreat and to really respect that person where they were at the moment. Currently, I'm in a seven-month online certificate program for trauma-informed care. And it's very interesting in that what I never had a name for, I'm the experts in the fa- in the field have put names to, to those skills and behaviors that we use as therapists to protect the client from being re-traumatized, but also to protect ourselves from what might come out and we're not ready for. So I think it's a real balance. I think trauma-informed care is really about using the social work process, coming from a strengths perspective. Um, I think one area in social work that we need to be more aware of as clinicians is the neuroscience of the brain. And that's one of the pieces that I have been reading about over the last maybe five years. But in this course, it's been focused on a lot and how we store information, where we store it in our brain. Um, and how to handle those those traumas with clients. So I'm sorry if I'm talking too much. Never too much. That, that's a lot of information. Very interesting. Let's parse it out a bit. So okay. this idea that we don't or we shouldn't, no, excuse me, we should know when to help a client process the trauma versus leaving it alone. Can you say more about that? How do you know? What guides you in that? Well, I think... I think when we conduct an assessment of a client's trauma, and I think one of the assessment tools is the ACEs. And once we see that there's a high score on the ACEs, I think right from that very moment, we have to be aware that this is a person who has been through a lot. Um, I'm going to just pause you for any audience members that might not be familiar with ACEs. We're talking about adverse childhood experiences. Yes. Yes. Which can you just explain briefly what that's about? Right. So the adverse childhood experience assessment scale was developed in the 80s. And there are 10 questions on that scale. And everything from... Have you lived with somebody with a mental illness? Have you witnessed domestic violence? Um, Have you been 
called names? Have you been abused yourself physically? Um, have you had a family member incarcerated? I don't have the scale right in front of me, but anything, uh, generally the higher the score, four and above, there are grave concerns about the trauma that that person has experienced. Mm-hmm. And if I conduct that assessment and find out that that person has has a score of eight, then I'm, I think what the trauma theory says is that you must go in very carefully, cautiously, mm-hmm. and not rush into talking about those past traumas. Mm-hmm. And if you start to recognize that the person is beginning to get nervous or sweat or get excited or dissociate, you don't want to re-traumatize them. So best to bring them back to the center and do some deep breathing. And I think one of the one of the key principles that I've been learning about in this class that I think I've always used but didn't know that it was key to working with trauma clients is the value, the importance of breathing and breathing stop and breathing in a session, doing some guided imagery, stop and breathing with the client for yourself to help you become recentered. And the other, so I'm not, did I answer your question? Yeah, I believe so. So I'm thinking about the parallels. I'm a psychodynamic psychotherapist and my understanding of working with trauma, we think about it in terms of defenses and everybody's got their defense mechanisms and defense Mm -hmm. mechanisms are protective. And so until we understand how those defense mechanisms are being used and whether or not somebody has the ego strong enough to start to pull at those defenses or strip away those defenses so that you can help them process the trauma, you should not, exactly what you're saying, you should not begin to go there. And you have a different measure for assessing that. I use my observation and assessment skills in a very different way, but it's kind of an interesting parallel because the underlying theory or concept around it is very similar. Right. And I think that we were probably trained very similarly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a a psychodynamic approach. I think this overlay of learning more about the brain has been very useful Mm -hmm. to me. Thinking about the brain as an organ that stores information. And I started to learn a little bit more about that a couple of years ago during the pandemic. I took an art therapy certificate program, and I really didn't have any intention of doing this. It kind of appeared. It was like the right time. And I've always used, when I first started working, I used finger painting with people who suffered from chronic schizophrenia. And I found that that, that using that tactile method was very helpful for them to get in touch with how they were feeling. Otherwise, as you say, their defenses were so strong that they they couldn't share anything. And I think since I completed that program, I've used more 
just letting people just having paper and markers or paper and pencils so people can just scribble and at the sometimes at the end of the session we'll talk about what the scribble is if it's anything and it really helps them to use that part of the brain where the trauma is has been stored that they hadn't even thought about Wow. So you, are you saying that unconsciously the scribble represents the trauma or I, I or is a release of self-care? It's a you release. Know, just, it's, a release. it's a release. But then, you know, if I say, do you want to talk about that? I don't put anything on it. Like, do you, do you want to talk about what you see in this scribble? It's always very fascinating that people can say, oh, this, I see this. or People might actually, we will talk about the process of scribbling. What do they and see? What have they seen? Just the other day, I was working with a, a, a young woman who has just diagnosed with PTSD from her nurse practitioner. And she has witnessed um, four overdoses in her young life. Two close friends, two not close friends. and. When she was just scribbling on this little piece of paper, at the end, she said, can I tell you about this? And I said, oh, only if you feel like it. And she said, well, first of all, when I was scribbling, I was remembering walking to my friend's house because I had a feeling something was wrong. But this, this X, it just came out. and that." Next to me is that when I got there, she was dead. And I've never talked about that with anybody. Wow. That's so, so powerful. Yeah. So the other thing that I've been learning from this certification program that I'm in is how much, how important it is to do any kind of body work. They've talked a lot about the importance of stretching, um, of doing yoga. They've talked about some studies where people who did no yoga versus people who did yoga, how that helped them with talking about the trauma in the session with the therapist and how it's helping them to recover. Mm. So artwork, body work, guided imagery, activity, just, and so when I, you talk about defenses, and one of the things that they talk about in the class is how sometimes those defenses obviously need to be there. They, they need to be, be mm -hmm. right where they are, and it's important for us not to move in too quickly. But usually the client will give us a sign or tell us that they're ready to talk about this. And I think helping them also to learn how to cope after they've had the session. So moving into that self-care mode for them and maybe for us, which is a big part of trauma work. 
that's a big part. I'm going to come back to self-care in a moment, but I'm thinking okay. about a student of mine who's in a certain field placement. And this has been a repetitive theme year after year. She works with children, traumatized children. And we have a debate between me and the field supervisor, and I'd love to know your thoughts about this, regarding termination, right? Obviously, the student's um, time at their field placement comes to an end in mid-May. And I work with my students in all of their various field placements to work on termination with their clients four to six weeks before they're coming to an end, remind the client that you're going to be leaving and process this with them, what it means to them. Because oftentimes it reignites trauma, abandonments and loss. And it's important to have a corrective experience around that, that I'm not just leaving you at a drop of a hat. I'm actually informing you ahead of time, I'm processing it, I want to hear your feelings, I can manage those, on and on. Okay, so in this particular placement, the field supervisor believes that the kids should not know until like the last week because it will re-traumatize them. And so it's kind of curious for those folks who, here we are talking about pacing and the importance of pacing. And as I'm listening to you, it's almost like I could see myself coming over to the other side and saying, well, if they're not ready, then how are we imposing this on them or forcing this upon them? But then I think the the fear is that it's going to induce trauma. They're going to act out. They're going to be problematic behaviors. And that's going to be disruptive. But we obviously don't know what happens after the student leaves and drops this on them in their last meeting and does it really prevent that from happening? And if so, what's going on with the kids internally that's not being expressed? So just kind of curious your thoughts around that. Well, as a as I share this being a psychodynamic psychotherapist by tra- by my training and a family therapist, let's say, I share that view of starting four to six weeks ahead to say goodbye, to let people know. Personally, I think it's a mistake to just walk away. I think that's traumatizing. I think that children who have experienced loss often experience that loss in a very abrupt manner. And I think that one of the corrective experiences and healing methods is to give them the opportunity to see this is how it works. This is how it can be. I can know. Yes, I can cry. Yes, I'm going to be sad. But this person isn't going to be here one day and disappear. So I, I, I think, personally, I think for the children, that's not a good method. But again, we're at the mercy of the agency, the school, the organization, right? And what they want to do. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. We are. Of course we are. But this year I have a student who says, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Oh. Because, I mean, you know, which I can't certainly encourage, but um, that's how strongly she feels that ethically what she's doing is harmful to the students. I I would go, I would absolutely support that yeah yeah. and and so oh maybe she forgot to tell her (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, we'll leave that one alone for now. Okay, we'll um, yeah, let's go back to self-care. And maybe this was an aspect of self-care for the student and her decision to, to do this is that yeah. she has to live with the consequences of not doing that and feeling like she's imparting more trauma on those clients. But so yes. I'm thinking about you as the practi- practitioner who specializes in this and is working with trauma all the time. Like that's got to be emotionally draining. And how do you not experience secondary traumatization? And so before we talk about self-care of your clients, I want to know about self-care of yourself. So I have a couple things that I do regularly and and some things that I do not so regularly, but I do. So I think one of my most important outlets is to journal. So I'll journal maybe about the client, but maybe more importantly, I journal about my feelings. And I don't necessarily write a page and a half, but I'll write what I feel like writing at that time. And I try to journal a little bit every day. So journaling is one thing. I think other methods that I use for self-care is I walk I don't necessarily always make it a walk intentionally, but when I do walk, I walk intentionally. I look around, I maybe focus on everything that's around me, trying not to focus on anything else. So to clear your head. Really to clear my head, yeah. And since I... For the, I, I guess since the pandemic, um, and maybe before that, in classes, I would use guided imagery with my students, maybe at the beginning of a class, get them centered, take a few breaths. We're here today. Let's forget about what happened before you came. So I've been doing a little bit of that on my own. And then the other thing that I did a lot during the pandemic is I, I, I made collages. I collected magazines and newspapers, and it was absolutely refreshing for me to cut and paste. And I tried to do some without a theme and some with a theme. And I do that with my students too. So Doing some kind of tactile work is a form of self-care, whether it's working on journaling. So actually doing that. Some people like to speak into a microphone. I like the activity. So I'm wondering how you define self-care, because as you're talking, I'm thinking about the purposefulness of these activities, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's clearing one's mind, being able to be present. Let's get rid of all of the other feelings that have come before this moment. But I'm thinking about people, students in particular, when we talk about self-care, they say, I go to get my nails done, or I make sure that I get my Starbucks coffee every morning. So I wanted to know what your thoughts are about that. Like, and how, how does, what does self-care really mean? You're giving good examples of self-care. Well, I think self-care is not Maybe for some people it is about going and getting your nails done. But I think for 
practitioners and people in this field, it, it's almost like you have to have a little bit of a plan. And I think self-care means doing something for yourself to release some energy. Some That's what it means to me, release some negative energy, but also to get focused and centered. So I think it's not just about a one-time thing. It's mm -hmm. about a practice. And I think when I was in graduate school, and again, I'm dating myself, 19, you know, I graduated in 1978. I don't think I ever even heard the word self-care. I don't even, I don't think I heard, I don't, I don't think anybody ever said, take care of yourself. They might've said, when you go home, just turn it off. So I think self-care is about learning how to focus on you and your world and do something relieving and releasing. Mm. Um, mm. So you can be present in your life. So I feel like self-care is about helping you to learn to be present in your own day-to-day -day life. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And as you were just talking, I was thinking about self-regulation. Also, yeah, being able to regulate your emotions so that you can just come back to baseline if you're feeling very stressed or anxious or upset by what you're experiencing or where your thoughts have gone or any of that. Yeah. And, it, and it really is about, I think it's about self-regulation, but I think before you can get to self-regulation, it's about self-awareness. It's about understanding yourself, how you process information, where you store that information, how, how you do not regulate that information and what you're going to do to learn how to take, you know, better care of you. Treat yourself as special as you treat your clients. Well said. That makes a lot of sense. So I assume, I know I was asking you about how you self-care, and now you're saying that these are tactics and strategies that you implement with your clients and that you bring into the classroom as well to get your yeah. students centered on where you're going with the material at hand, because even there are certain concepts that we teach that can engender very strong, difficult feelings. Just, I like to cook. And even though that's something that, okay, you have to make dinner, but when I'm cooking, I am focusing on, I've learned to do this in the last several years, be present. And I think self-care is learning to be present with yourself and yeah. doing, doing something that, that, makes you feel a, a sense of relief, a sense of competence, a sense of pleasure. So can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in trauma work? I know you mentioned at the beginning this experience of working with the chronically persistently mentally ill, and you observed what was mm -hmm. happening with them. Is there anything of your own personal nature or background that drives you to work in this way? <laughs>, <laughs> she laughs. I grew up in a family. <laughs> I grew up in a family, period. Understood. Next. Okay. Um, no, I think that um, the recognition 
that all people experience some sort of trauma. And when I was in graduate school, my track was family therapy. So in the late 70s and early 80s, family therapy was big. Where it was at. Pardon me? It's where it was at. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to a million trainings. And in the mid-80s, when it was discovered that we had this thing called foster care drift, family preservation programs were developed. And I was uh, living in Vermont, and the agency that I worked for at the time received a demonstration project from the federal government. So we put together this family preservation program, which was working with families who were at risk of having their children removed. And the part of Vermont that I lived in at the time was very rural. It was on the pipeline from Canada, from Canada, Vermont, through Massachusetts to Vermont and Canada, where drugs were being transported. So in this little rural town of Vermont, in Vermont, um, there was a, a, a lot of heroin and crack cocaine in this 80s. So we had, I had a number of people that I supervised who were going into the home of families at risk of having their children removed three to four times a week. And these families were poor, um, had experienced a lot of trauma. They were developmentally disabled. They had, uh, there was drug substance abuse. They had been children who had been in foster care. So I think that was really the beginning of my understanding of how powerful a family system can be and that whole issue of intergenerational trauma. And when I moved to New York, I continued while I was getting my feet wet in higher education I myself worked with a program that provided family preservation services. Mm -hmm. So I was going into the homes, not as a supervisor now, but as a, a clinician for people who could not get to the office because they had no transportation and they had a lot of nothing and they had experienced a lot, a lot of tough times in their lives. And I was in their homes which is a whole nother world. So I think that's really where my interest in trauma came from, is doing the home-based work. This is such a deep, meaningful work. It's also, as I said before, very draining work, right? Yes. You have to sustain yourself, and as you do with self-care. What, mm-hmm. what keeps you connected to this work? What keeps you wanting to remain in this niche, I don't know if it's a niche, because as you said, everybody experiences some form of trauma, truthfully, but to have an entire caseload where you're really focusing on this kind of work, what keeps you connected to that? Well, I think now, I think that's a really good question, Amy. I think now at this point of my life, after being in the field for 40 plus years, I think it's my students. And bringing some real life, minus names, minus real data, into the classroom and sharing with them not just success stories, 
but my mistakes. Sharing with them, uh, you, you know this, we have students who come into social work and they're on the fence. Is this for me? Is this not for me? I'd like to do this. I want to be a therapist. But before you get there, you're a lot of other things. And I think sharing those real life experiences of what social work is helps them to make a decision at times. Is this for me? Is this really for me? Because my students are young. They're traditional age students for the most part. I might have one or two older students who have been out in the field. So I think sharing my knowledge, sharing mistakes that I've made, having them be able to say, well, what would you do when this happened? And my saying, well, let's think about what you would do. And having a dialogue about something that really did happen. Um, yeah, I have loads of case studies. To oh, see yeah. them go through this process of learning and critical thinking and trying to figure it all out, share with them your experiences in a very different way. I'm assuming that makes it more rewarding and, and lightens it up a little bit as well. Yeah. I mean, it's like when we take theory to practice, the theory is very important. But really looking at how we apply that theory in real life. Right. You need a practical application. Absolutely. It helps them to see, oh, that theory about person and environment. Oh, it really can. Oh, look, it really is helpful. Yes. That's why, you know, as professors, we need to have our fingers on the pulse. We need to still be connected to the community, connected to the work that we're that we're teaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, And being on the cutting edge of the most recent problems, for instance, racial trauma. And that's something, you know, that's hard to talk about for lots of people, but it's very real. Yeah, I don't know how cutting edge it is. It's been around forever, right? But it's really certainly oh. coming to the forefront now. Oh, it's been around forever, but it hasn't really been talked about. Absolutely. Enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, this is fascinating work. I mean, I could talk on and on with you about this. You, really so interesting. I didn't mention that Daria sit and I sit on the board of the New York State Social Work Education Association. And I'm always amazed when I get another opportunity to speak with someone I know or a colleague and have worked with in a certain capacity and to have a door open to a, a, a complete piece of information or knowledge or background of what you're involved in that I wouldn't have really somehow been exposed to in the other pocket or compartmentalization (laughs) of our work together. So this has been an incredible treat. I appreciate your time. And I think that the work you're doing is so needed, so valuable, and, and certainly valued because as we said, trauma is everywhere, unfortunately. And, and even the, the practice of self-care, irrespective of a lived experience of trauma in the moment or reliving it, is so important. It's such an important strategy or lesson for us to take into our everyday lives. So thanks for being with me. Well, um, thank you. 
Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?